Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to this episode of The Unveiling. Today, we're jumping into Philippians 1, continuing our walk through that book. It's going to be a good time. Grab a Bible and pen, and let's get ready to go. go so so glad you're tuning in today this episode of the unveiling man i'm excited about jumping in to um the really the first chapter of the book of philippians last time we talked about um the background and the context, the history, the culture, some different things like that, which, by the way, if you haven't yet um, listened to that episode, I want to encourage you to do that before listening to this episode or any of the future episodes of um, the book of Philippians, because that's pretty essential um, context to understanding before we dive into a text. Um, so be sure to go back and listen to that. Um, but thank you so much for tuning in, whether you're tuning in from a podcast or from the YouTube channel. Uh, so glad you're you're um, following along. It's it's an honor um, to do this. Before diving in, I do want to. Um, invite you to do a couple things. Uh, first, if you're listening on podcast, I want to um, invite you to follow or subscribe, um, but then uh, rate, maybe comment if your platform allows you to do so, because uh, for a couple reasons, one, following and subscribing um, on social media, if we post, hey, a new episode's out or this, that, and the other thing, uh, most social media algorithms only show about 10% of your uh, following or those that are uh, connected with you. Uh, whereas if you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode, even if you didn't see the post that says, hey, there's, an, there's a new episode out or whatever. So that's pretty practical. But the second is, if you rate it, um, if your platform, some of them are like, you know, give it, you know, five stars or three stars or whatever, that's a rating. Um, and then commenting, um, what that does is that tells your platform that, hey, uh, this content's good. And so it'll start suggesting it to other people that um, listen to similar content. And so um, it's a way to get the word out and to expose um what the Lord's doing in and through this to other people. Uh, secondly, if you're watching from YouTube and that's kind of the platform you tune in from, um, subscribing to this channel uh, would be essential. Hitting the notification button um, would enable you to get notified every time there's content released. Now, I do want to know, sometimes we put content on podcasts that are only on podcasts. They're not going to be on YouTube. Sometimes we put content on YouTube that's only on YouTube. Um, and it won't be on a podcast. So we have a couple different things on each platform. So you want to subscribe to both if you're interested, but uh, subscribing, turning on the notifications for both podcasts and YouTube is going to be essential in making sure you never miss anything. But uh, on YouTube, uh, consider liking, commenting, uh, creating discussion, asking questions, things of that nature, um, because that uh, in turn does the same thing where uh, others who uh, engage in similar content, YouTube sees, hey, there's people engaging here, the content must be valuable, so we're going to recommend it to others who watch similar content. Uh, lastly, I'd love to invite you to share if this content or any other content adds value to you. Um, the greatest compliment you can give Anyone producing any sort of content, whether that's an artist, a musician, a pastor, uh, in my case, biblical exposition, uh, things of that nature, um, the greatest compliment you can give them is not necessarily to purchase 
what they're creating, though that's amazing, but um, it's actually just to share it. Um, that's the greatest compliment you can give people creating anything. And uh, in this instance, um, I believe you um, get rewarded and blessed out of it because uh, in this context, you're actually taking part in sharing the gospel. You're participating in sharing the gospel. We'll actually talk about that in this episode um, because Paul talks about that in the introductory part of his letter here. So um, I w- it would mean the world. It would be such a great honor if this episode or any other content encourages you, adds value to you. Um, if you would take part in sharing the gospel through texting the link to a friend or putting it on Facebook, however that makes sense to you, it would just mean the world. So I would love to invite you to do that. But without further ado, um, we're going to jump in here. I want to make special note that we are going to dive in not um, verse by verse, not line by line, but rather uh, sentence by sentence or complete thought by complete thought. Uh, the Bible, when it was originally written, was not written with chapters or verses. Um, it was written as a complete letter. And so we want to look at a complete thought because sometimes verses are um, notified right in the middle of a thought. And so if you try to look at that first, you're missing the context of the entire complete thought. So we're going to look at complete thought by complete thought. Uh, And lastly, I want to encourage you to grab a pen, Bible, journal, and to follow along as we go through this. Um, These particular episodes are going to be pretty dense. Um, They're they're going to be the longer ones. They're going to be things you want to write down and and take back and study and look into um, or remember and apply. Hopefully, um, they're things you're you're able to provide, uh, apply. You're not just uh, listening one ear and out the other. You're able to kind of um, learn and apply some of the things that we study. Um, and so there's other episodes, you know, on podcasts, we do an impromptu podcast every now and then those are, are lighter, shorter on YouTube. We have some, um, lighter, shorter type content that, uh, you may not, you know, want to sit down and write down things with. Um, but on these episodes, I'd encourage you to do that. So without further ado, let's pray and then, and jump in. Heavenly father, we come to you today. We just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to be here. Um, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak through me. Would you remove me? Would you glorify Jesus today and let only be said what you would have said today? God, would you soften the hearts of every listener? God, would you take this seed that's to be scattered today and scatter it on good soil so that it will produce fruit? We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for all you've done and for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go ahead and read the entire um, text, verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and, um, and, and read the entire thing, and then we'll start breaking it down thought by thought. So, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. 
For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So that's a beautiful intro. And I do want to note that that's exactly what it is. That is the introduction to his letter. So throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see a lot more theological applicable things that Paul's mentioning and talking about. Uh, This is the introduction to his letter. And even in his introduction, we're going to see a lot of neat things that are applicable uh, and they're um, very encouraging and they bring a lot of insight into um, biblical matters. So without any more delay, let's jump in and start looking at verse by verse. Let's start at verse one. This is this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there are a few things I would like to just kind of teach. Uh, first, underline bondservants, and then underline including the overseers and deacons. Okay, so first, let's talk about bondservants. Um, bondservants is the English rendering of a Greek word, doulos. Okay, so a bondservant and a slave were a little different in that um, a slave was purchased and owned by their master. The slave had no choice, no free will, no no thought in the matter. Um, They were a slave, and they were owned. They were property. A bondservant, in Paul's use here, is um, someone who perhaps was a slave at one time, um, but they were given their freedom by their master, yet for their love of the master, they in their own will chose to stay as servants in their house. And so here's how the Blue Letter Bible kind of defines that. Um, It says, one who gives himself up for another's will. And in Paul's use of the word, those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. So I'll read that one more time. It says, one who gives himself up to another's will. And in Paul's use of the word, those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. So Paul here is distinguishing him and Timothy, not as slaves to Christ, but as bondservants, which means there's such an amazing love for uh, Christ that we choose to do this. Secondly, it means he's a good master. He's a master that gives us the free will and the freedom um, to not serve him. He's not forceful. He doesn't force himself on any person. And um, and so that's the kind of master he is. And so um, Paul, what Paul is saying is um, God does not treat us like slaves. He does not force anything. Uh, against us we choose to give our lives for him and and uh, the hope is that we can all say that the hope is that we can all say um, I could be going out and living and pursuing my dreams or doing this that and the other but I submit myself to the prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit I submit myself to what does Christ have for me what does Christ tell me to do where does Christ tell me to move where does Christ tell me to employ myself or what business does he um, tell me to to lead and how does he tell me to lead that and so we're submitting ourselves to the leadership of Christ 
out of our love for the master and out of our own will, not out of obligation or force. Um, secondly, the second thing we had underlined here was uh, this phrase, including the overseers and deacons. And what I want to do is just take a moment and kind of differentiate uh, between those and put some uh, language on it that might make a little more sense. So first overseer would be uh, equivalent to uh, a lead pastor or bishop here in in, in, in the Western church models um, that they basically um, are the oversight for the overarching vision and spiritual direction for the entire congregation. So there's a strict set of qualifications um, um, to to become an overseer, uh, and that's found in First Timothy three one through seven, and then also there's some in, in Titus one five through nine. If you want to look those up. Uh, so deacons, they were likewise church leaders, uh, usually unpaid, though most of the time in America they are, they are paid um, in our day and age. Uh, but they oversaw the practical things so that the overseers could focus on the spiritual things. Um, they also had strict qualifications, and those can be found in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. So um, in the Western model, you may have a lead pastor, a teaching pastor, who um, their real agenda, their real role, I should say, is vision of the church and to hear from God uh, for this, the message for that people in that season. And that's really their their number one priority are those things. Um, and that's kind of what they do. They're the spiritual shepherd, if you will, of the congregants that God gives them. Um, and those would be kind of similar to what the, the language of overseer. Uh, the closest thing to deacons that we have today in the Western world would be staff pastors so maybe you have a youth director or kids or uh, someone on staff that handles secretarial duties administration type stuff um, uh, maybe you have you know uh, production or things of that nature so those would be um, deacons especially the roles that um, are contributing to spiritual edification um, uh, but not always necessarily to be a deacon. So um, they did the practical things so that the lead shepherd, if you will, or the overseer, the lead pastor, didn't have to worry or think about practical things. They could focus solely on prayer, uh, biblical study, uh, presenting a message to the people, hearing from God, hearing from the people. So the deacons took care of all the practical things um, for them. So something that's pretty neat in the Hebrew parallel that I want to know about the deacons is um, in the synagogue, there's someone called a shamashim, and it comes from the Hebrew word shamash, which just means servant. And what's really neat about this is this particular role was often um, one who took care of secretarial duties. So again, we can see practical, tangible things that enabled the rabbi just to focus on the spiritual things and, and really grow and teach their people. But what's cool is the ninth candle on the menorah is called a shamash, because it's used to light the other eight candles. And so even in this word and in this picture, we can see that the role of a deacon, the role of uh, a shamashim or shamash, uh, the servant, is to light the flame of others around them to fulfill their purposes in Christ. And we can see that so clearly and beautifully in the life of Jesus, who is our role model and our example. He served, and at his serving, 
lit the fire, lit the candle of other people, if you will, um, and allowed them, that flame to be lit that led to fulfilling their purpose and them too becoming servants and lighting the candles of those around them. And so um, that would be uh, concluding um, deacon. Lastly, Paul says to all the saints um, here briefly in that, in that um, sentence, and saints would refer to any true, truly saved follower of Jesus. Um, they would follow something called the way. Um, and so... Um, what I want to note about the saints is they weren't people who just believed in their head uh, something to be true. So it wasn't, Paul wasn't referring to saints as people who believed the, the gospel story in their head. He was referring to saints as people who followed the way of Jesus. So they practiced it. They applied it. They let the message and um, the spirit change them, and it and it was expressed practically and tangibly and visibly. And so, they're people who follow the way. They don't just believe in idea all ideology or uh, a biblical story in their head to be true. Um, a lot of times in the West, the term Christian in the West has really come to mean um, someone who believes Jesus is God someone who believes the biblical narrative, the biblical story, the, the ideologies presented within, and but doesn't really go out and live anything. It almost just means, like Christian just means I'm not Muslim or I'm not Buddhist or I'm not something. I, that's really more or less what Christian has become to mean, at least from what I am observing in America. But what Paul refers to as saints and what was really a believer um, in the first century uh, had nothing had very little to do with um, what you believed in your head or held to be true in your thoughts. Um, It began there, so not to diminish that by any means, um, but it didn't stop there. It led to the the practical and physical life change in a person. And so Paul's referring to a saint as someone who's practicing the way. Now, they're not perfect. Um, Spiritual formation and, and and becoming like Christ is a lifelong process. So he's not referring to saints as people who are, have been perfected. As a matter of fact, he's going to say in a couple of verses later that uh, uh, God's perfecting you until the day of Christ. And so um, saints are just someone that they're, they're people that not only believe in their mind and their heart, Jesus is, is God and the, the gospel story, all that it entails, but they're also following that way uh, that Jesus teaches us. So, um, And so... Uh, lastly, what I want to note on that verse is Paul is making mention here that what he's going to write in the rest of his letter um, is included to the overseers and deacons. So sometimes because of these strict standards to be an overseer or deacon, a lot of times what was written in Paul's letters, um, the overseers and deacons um, already had worked out in their maturity and their character. Um, and so a lot of times what was written was written for the, the overseers and deacons to teach the saints and to teach the people as the saints and um, the congregants are maturing and growing into um, Christ followers. It wasn't always applicable to the overseers and deacons because a lot of things they had already ironed out. But in this particular letter, what Paul was going to say, the the deacons and overseers needed to listen to, uh, hear, receive, and apply. So Paul's making that distinction here. Um, And that's important for us as we move forward. Let's move on to verses 2 through 5. 
says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So uh, let's start in verse 3 here. I want you to underline, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Additionally, um, I want you to underline prayer with joy. Um, anytime we see the word all, I want you to circle that. So the word all there. And then the last thing I want you to underline is um, your participation in the gospel. Participation in the gospel. So the first, um, the first thing we're going to look at here is, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. What is that about? Well, um, first off, Paul is um, is in prison at this time, and um, when he remembers the church of Philippi, he's presented with joy in his emotions. The emotion of joy is evoked in him at the thought of the church of Philippi, which is unique. We talked a little bit about this um, in the last episode, um, where that most of the churches that Paul's writing to, he's writing to them in their letters with major character issues, major reproof, major advice, major correction, um, things of that nature, um, because there's just, there's a lot of hardship going on in these places. And uh, so perhaps when, when Paul thinks of the church of Corinth, it's stress or anxiety that's evoked in him. But when Paul thinks of the church of Philippi, he is uh, provoked to the place of giving thanks, and uh, which, which kind of gives us insight into the nature of this letter, um, as we'll talk about in a minute. But I read this last week, but I, um, I want to read it again. It's a uh, little excerpt from a, a commentary I read that made a note um, on the uniqueness of, of what Paul is saying when he thanks God in all remembrance. It says this, uh, For example, the church in Rome and Galatia were overwhelmed with Judaizers who wanted the believers to return to obeying the Jewish law. So Paul was fighting that. The church in Corinth was plagued by internal strife. The church in Ephesus was plagued by false teachers. The church, um, when he wrote in the letter to Colossians, was turning away to a heresy all on its own. The church in Thessalonica was dealing with false rumors about Paul, disrespect towards leaders, laziness among the members, false teachers um, about the resurrection. Paul's letter to the Philippians, while mentioning some concerns, which we'll talk about, um, but they're very mild in comparison, um, and giving some advice, would be considered a beautiful thank you note for their unwavering support. And so it lets us in here at the intro of Paul's intention to the letter. But it also gives us a glimpse that, that the church in Philippi was actually quite unique in that they didn't cause Paul a lot of heartache and stress. And it was rather um, a joyful delight when Paul thought about them. So um, always offering um, prayer with joy. Circle the word joy. Um, I talked a little bit about it last time. Um, that's going to be uh, one of the themes here and throughout the letter of Philippi. Just reiterating, this was the emotion that was evoked in Paul when he thought of the church at Philippi. Um, and it wasn't stress or anxiety like perhaps a lot of the other churches caused in Paul. Lastly, your participation in the gospel. This is really important because what I want to note here is that Paul was not saying that... Um, 
that it was their continued belief or thought thoughts uh, to be true that um, brought him joy. That's not what participation in the gospel meant. It didn't mean it didn't just mean their faith. That wasn't really what Paul was saying. Faith is the foundation and the beginning place of what Paul was talking about with with saying participation. But what Paul was meaning here was a practical application of of faith. It was the practical following of Jesus. And so we see, um, we will see more in depth that a lot of it has to do with uh, financial support, one of the only churches to financially support Paul and his ministry. Uh, because they gave financially, they um, received, and we'll see this actually later on, uh, I think it's in the fourth chapter uh, of the letter, um, that Paul, because they, they gave financially, they actually share in the, um, the, the rewards and the fruit of what Paul accomplished in his ministry because they practically gave to it. Additionally, they didn't let it stop with money. They continued to um, participate in the gospel via Paul uh, through practical means. They, they uh, hired him a staff member and sent a staff member to Paul. Um, we'll talk much more about that as we get to it. But um, it just goes to note, something funny about it is I talked to a lot of church leaders and and um, a, uh, a particular um, reputation that some members have um, in churches is that reputation that um, they, they, they'll, they'll, they'll stroke a check, but they don't want to give their time. They don't want to serve. Um, and it's funny because you have people with kind of that heart posture who are like, eh, I'll stroke you a nice check. And, and by all means, as, as a church that thrives on uh, the donation and ties of, of the people, that's huge. Um, but it's the heart posture that comes in that says, ah, I'll just stroke a check. I don't really want to serve on serve day. I don't want to serve our community really and go out and do that. I don't really want to help serve in some way within the church. Um, and so what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. Participation in the gospel extends beyond just stroking the check. Um, that's a, that's a part of it and it's a very big part of it. And it's, it's very, um, it's very, it's not to be diminished, but um, Paul's saying it ought to extend into to serve. Like Jesus got down and washed feet. Um, there's a very practical side to it. And what Paul is saying is your participation in the gospel here um, is, 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 it brings joy because it's both and. And so um, that's what we're looking at here when he says participation in the gospel. It's not just, hey, you guys are not falling away from the belief of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Uh, that's obviously a part of it. Because the, the, the practical side of it wouldn't come out if they had fallen away from the belief in Jesus. So a couple of things we can take away here from these first couple of verses. Uh, first is what uh, emotions um, are you invoking in people? And let me say it this way. Are you the church of Philippi or are you the church of Corinth or one of the other churches uh, for other people? So when people think about you, um, has your character displayed Christ in such a way that the emotions that arise in them um, are joy, peace, or are they stress and anxiety? Um, a filter we can apply to our mindset when interacting with people in everyday life or maybe tough situations, conflict, um, is to ask ourselves these two questions. How can I create joy in this person? Um, or is my attitude and actions going to create joy in this person next time they remember me? 
Um, and so I wonder if we applied these two questions in every interaction um, we had with people, especially tough situations or conflict, how they would um, drastically change the outcome um, um, of how we act, how our attitude is, the choices we make, things of that nature. Um, and always striving to create joy and peace and be a great representation of, of who Jesus is um, and everything. But it starts with the intentionality of asking those questions. Second um, is in the times, so Paul says, in every remembrance of you, he gives thanks. Um, so in the times that um, you, you're going throughout your day and you think someone pops in your head, maybe it's a high school student you haven't seen in 20 years, or maybe it's someone you, you see every now and then, you know, once a week at church, but you haven't seen them in a while and you never think of them, but here they are randomly popping in your mind. Uh, take those moments and not, don't just write them off as coincidence, uh, but take those moments and ask the Holy Spirit, um, hey, how can I pray for this person? It, uh, pray blessing, favor over them, pray protection over them, uh, give thanks to God for them. This is what Paul is saying here is that every remembrance um, of you at Philippi, I lift up a prayer. I, I give thanks to you. Um, and so a lot of times we'll remember people uh, or we'll think of people and just kind of let the, the thought fleet from us and, and go. Um, but what if we were intentional about that and could lift up a prayer for, for those moments and say, hey, Holy Spirit, uh, thank you for reminding me of this person. Bless them today. Things of that nature. Um, I think that that would be just out of this world. So those are a couple applications for those verses. Let's move on uh, to verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So first I want to highlight the word um, confident, underline that. Uh, secondly, underline good work. And uh, thirdly, underline will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So confident here, what I want to note about this is it's a perfect active verb. And some of you are like, don't know what that means, or why should I care? Um, it's actually, it tells us a lot about the verb that um, Paul's using and the intention. So um, this verb actually um, indicates that Paul is as confident as something that has already happened, or probably more accurately, something that is currently happening before his eyes. So it's not you know, if you have a friend, maybe they're going to take their state exam for something and they're like, man, I'm really, I'm really nervous about this. I got to pass it, yada, yada. And you're like, look, I'm confident. Like, you're going to do great. You're a smart person. Well, that's encouraging. But when you use that word confident there, um, it's not a perfect active verb. It's more of a kind gesture. You're not really confident. You don't know um, because they haven't taken the test yet. But you're encouraging them. That's not how Paul is using this. What, how Paul is using this is more or less in the sense of if, he look, if you look up in the air and you see a bird flying in front of you, currently, presently, it's actively happening, and you say, I'm confident there's a bird flying in front of me. It's that confidence because it can be seen, and it's, it's happening. And so what Paul is saying is, is, I'm confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Why is he, why is he confident in this way? Because he can see the good work. He knows it's happening because 
he can see the good work in the church of Philippi. He can see the good work in their financial support. He can see the good work in their practical support. He can see the good work in, in the character of the congregants when he gets report of how the church is doing and, and how they're growing and, and all these things. He can see confidently that good work, just like I could see the bird currently happening, flying right in front of me, and I'm confident it's there. Paul can confidently see the good work um, happening in their lives. So it's a, it's a really particular um, a profound rather, uh, instance where we can see what kind of a verb this is. It tells us a lot about, um, about this complete thought here, this, this sentence. Secondly, moving forward into good work, something that's really neat about this is it's actually, um, Eden language, language that really the last time we, we hear it is in Genesis one. When's the last time you hear, um, in the biblical narrative of a work being called good. It's probably, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. I'm, maybe there is, but the most famous is when God's creating the world and he's, and he calls his work good. And uh, here we are, we see Paul drawing the minds um, of believers back to the garden where um, when God created man for the first time, he called it good. And uh, here we are, we see God doing another work and calling it good. And uh, what is that work? It's the, the work of restoring what, what, what has fallen or, um, yeah, re, completely reinstating re, um, what has fallen. The, the human, the humanity, all of humanity has fallen. It fell in the garden. And, um, and really, it t- this, this work, this word it's amazing. It ties Genesis all the way to Revelation because in the narrative of the Bible, we can see in Genesis where the world was created and it fell. And then in Revelation, we can see where Jesus is restoring everything um, that fell with the creation of the new earth and uh, uh, people um, are being give, being given their new bodies. They're being restored and they're fully like Christ. John says we'll be like him uh, because we'll see him. And uh, that is the day of Christ, getting a little ahead of myself, the day of Christ that Paul's referring to here. But good work, it's basically saying this good work is is like God creating um, again in the garden and it's being restored. And he's kind of tying the entire biblical narrative together in this one, uh, these two words, good work, good work. Um, and so it's really cool what we can see behind that. But moving forward, the good work um, that um, he's doing in you, he'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so what he's saying here is that uh, this will not happen overnight. It's a process. And uh, becoming like Jesus is a process. And and my belief is I'm not sure that we'll ever be like fully like Jesus until that day of Christ that he's talking about there. I think we can get pretty dang close. Um, and I think we can um, model Jesus like we see um, in the in his autobiographies, if you will, called the Gospels. Um, and that's how we are made and designed to live our character and all of these things. And I think we can, uh, the Holy Spirit can reform us and refine us, but it's a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. And so I want to encourage you, if you are on this um, journey following Jesus, do not grow weary. Do not give up. Do not beat yourself over the head when you um, fall and do not display the character of Christ and you make mistakes and you sin and you leave the ways of Christ and you prioritize money and your job and your uh, all these other 
worldly things over Jesus. Don't beat yourself up over it because it is a process, but let the Holy Spirit convict you um, and continue practicing and com- and continue training. It's kind of like an athlete. Uh, you don't run a marathon overnight. Uh, you get up and you run a mile and you run two miles and then you run 10 miles and then eventually you can run however long a marathon is, 26 point something miles. Um, and it's the same with following Jesus and being reformed and refined into his character, into the nature of Christ. Uh, but that's pa- what Paul is saying is, is I can already see it happening just like a bird currently flying in front of me. I can see it happening because your character is displaying your transformation that the Holy Spirit's doing, and he's going to continue transforming you even until the day of Christ when he perfects you. And that's what Paul is saying here. So that's, that's a lot that we get out of one verse. So moving on to verse 7. It says this, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, there's that word again, are partakers of grace with me. Now notice that all is in this one verse two times. So um, circle it. Every time we see all, um, especially in this opening uh, introduction to his letter, we want to note that. Um, Paul is saying all a lot. Because remember, we talked about this uh, in the last episode that this group is having unity issues to some degree. They're, and they're not drastic. They're not crazy. Things haven't gotten out of hand so far as, as it seems. Um, but we do have some who are perhaps, um, they are contributing more practically, or maybe they're contributing more money, or they're, um, they're really, man, uh, further along in this transformation process. And so there's kind of this pride that's risen up in this this church here. And what Paul is saying is, from the greatest of you to the least of you, all of you, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, not just the main giver, not just the millionaire in your group who pretty much funded the full-time staff member, but even the one who couldn't give. They had no money to give. Even that person, you share in participation of the gospel. And even that person, I'm thankful for you. And so every time Paul is saying all here, I believe he's subtly hinting at the unity issue that's arising here um, in the body. But he's speaking to the equality in Christ, that Christ is not a, is not a respecter of persons, that it's, it's not about how much money you have. It's not about um, how little money you have. It's not about your talents. It's not about how talented you are or not. It's not about what you can practically contribute or what you practically cannot contribute. It's all about equality in Christ. And in the same way, Paul is not a respecter of persons, just as Jesus wasn't a respecter of persons. There's a particular scripture in the gospel, um, which basically uh, the disciples say, like, people don't matter to you in in this regard, (laughs) Uh, and and their status, their status of people does not matter to you. And so you can't be wavered when people compliment you, and you can't be wavered when people hate on you, because the status of people doesn't affect you. And what Paul is saying is every person is equal, great, um, small, um, famous, or nameless. It doesn't matter um, and so when we see these words all, it's really speaking to a unity and an equality. Second, um, uh, what I want to highlight here is partakers of grace with me. And it really, um, really is 
it ties into the partners and the gospel that we just talked about. Um, but what I'd love to really point out is this word grace. Um, in the in the West, we turn we tend to um, automatically term the word grace. We we tend to make that a synonym of mercy. Um, it kind of means we got off the hook. We didn't die or go to hell because of grace. That that it's really being used more as a synonym of mercy, and it can mean that. Um, but that's actually because of the way uh, uh, it's rendered in English from a Hebrew word, not the Greek word. Um, and I'll go. I, I would really love to do an entire episode on this whole grace and mercy thing. But um, what I want to get here is your partakers of grace with me. The most simple definition, it's Paul's not using it as a synonym to the word mercy. Okay, so you're not a partaker. Grace does not mean mercy. Uh, does not being used as your partaker in the escape from eternal damnation. That's not what Paul is saying here. Um, in short, the actual uh, meaning of grace could be defined this way. Grace is the supernatural gift. So the Greek word actually um, comes out to a word that was used for gift. So it's a supernatural gift that enables one to endure and fulfill one's calling. Um there's a particular verse we'll talk about another time, maybe if I do an episode on this, that actually talks about it was grace that enabled Jesus to die on the cross. Um, and so you're thinking, wait, 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 grace, that in that particular context does not mean mercy. <laughs> so we're seeing that grace was the gift that enabled Jesus to fulfill his calling. And so what, what Paul is saying here, you are all partakers of grace with me, meaning you couldn't do this without the gift of grace, that it's only through the Holy Spirit. You could not uh, be partakers um, or partners in the gospel without the gift of grace. Grace is the, um, the gift that supernaturally, it's not in your own strength, enables you to endure the trials, troubles, testings, hardships um, of life and fulfill your calling. So um, our calling is, all, all of our calling is to die to the human nature, right? And just as grace enabled Christ to die on the cross, it will enable us to die to our human nature and our selfishness and our desires and, and fulfill what we are called to do, live like Christ and so on and so forth. Again, that's a, another episode for another day, but that's the gist of what Paul is getting at. He's saying, you are all partakers of grace with me. You have all been given the supernatural gift that's going to enable you to endure and fulfill your calling. So um, that's, again, that's a lot we're seeing out of just that one sentence there from Paul and his opening, opening statement here of this letter. But let's move on to verse 8. For God is my witness, how I long for you all. Again, there's that word all. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And really what I want to note here, it's not much, is, is that Paul's in prison. He's awaiting trial in Rome. He may never see his Macedonian friends ever again. And uh, um, note the word all here is Paul speaking to that word. He's speaking to that sense of unity. He, he wants to see not just the people that gave money. He wants to not just see the people that, um, 
that are wealthy or that have talents or whatever. Um, and in a church where someone, some are under the impression that um, they've done or acted better than others and that perhaps Paul um, holds them to a higher status, um, Paul is really saying that God's not um, basing his love based on our righteousness, based on how much money we give, based on how much time we um uh, serve or give our talents or whatever, um, those things matter. But um, God holds us all equally. And, and Paul's saying, like, I, I, I could die here. I can never see you guys again. Uh, this could be the, the end for me. And I want to see all of you equally from the least to the greatest of you. And uh, he's trumpeting that theme. Verses 9 through 11, let's jump there. And here's kind of um, where we're going to wind down. It says this, in this I pray that your love, circle the word love, your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, underline that, real knowledge and all discernment, underline discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Again, there's that phrase, the day of Christ, but he wants them to uh, be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, Okay. So he's not saying um, that, oh, don't worry about not sinning, not uh, being transformed into the character and likeness of Christ because you're really not going to make it until the day of Christ and he transforms you. No, he's saying, I, I-, I want you to uh, be sincere and blameless even until that day. And so that should still be a desire of our hearts. But underline this, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness— um, how do, how do we, um, uh, present ourselves sincere and blameless? Uh, well, we've been filled with the fruit of right, righteousness. And so, uh, we begin to then bear the fruit of righteousness, but it comes, here's what Paul finishes with saying. It comes through Jesus Christ, that fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Again, abide in the vine. You're the branches. He's the vine. Um, you can't produce any fruit outside of him. And that's what essentially Paul is reiterating here. Why bear fruit? Why bear fruits of righteousness? Why be sincere and blameless? Well, Paul tells us here to conclude his thought, to the glory and praise of God. That's it. That's why, that's why we're uh, filled with the fruit and righteousness and, and that produced from our life. So let's dive into these last couple verses here and really break them down. Uh, first, Paul is uh, he's concluding the introductory of his letter with a prayer. Uh, that's what this is. It's kind of a, a concluding prayer. It's the prayer of his heart. He's probably not bowing his head and closing his eyes as we traditionally do here. He's he's saying like, my desire and my appeal to heaven for you is that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you approve the things that are excellent. Why? Well, if you approve the things that are excellent, then uh, you become serum blameless. And that'll be until the day of Christ, because you'll bear fruit of righteousness, which only comes through Jesus. Again, Christ Jesus tying back to uh, love abounding in knowledge and discernment. Well, why should my love abound? Why should I be sincere and blameless? Why should I prove what's excellent? Why should I be filled with fruit of righteousness to glory, to bring glory and praise to God? And that's and that's really what Paul is praying. He's really appealing to heaven here, but it's it's more of a it's a cry of his heart. 
um, to heaven, that this would be the reality for these people, but this would be the reality for all who are saints. And we talked about saints earlier. What are saints? People following the way. It's not just about holding an ideology or belief. It's about following a way. And here's really a great snapshot of that way. And so to all saints, this is really his prayer. And he's concluding here. Now, I want to note that love, and again, this is another thing. Hopefully, I'll do a whole episode just on love because it's it's really powerful. We don't really have a, a good understanding of love here in the West because, as m- maybe you know, um, uh, the Greek had multiple words for love, um, um, and we have one. And so there's there's multiple th- dimensions to love, and so um, we read the word love and kind of encapsulate into a bunch of different things and miss out on what Paul's really trying to say. And so love here has nothing to do with emotions. I want to note that it has nothing to do with emotions. So when Paul's saying is that your love may abound, it's not, has nothing to do with how you feel about somebody. It has nothing to do with if you like somebody or not. Matter of fact, Jesus says, love your enemy. So it has nothing to do with emotion. It has nothing to do with how you look towards your spouse or your children or your parents. That's not the love he's talking about here. Um, and so um, he's he's using the word agape here, which is used all throughout uh, um, the New Testament, and and referring to the love of God. It's um, for humanity. It's that word is agape, um, and um, and when when the New Testament authors are really saying and teaching us like the essential, the, the number one thing about all this is love God, love people, that word's agape. And this love is, has nothing to do with emotion, has nothing to do with how you feel. Matter of fact, most times it's presented most authentically and truly when you don't feel like loving somebody or liking someone or doing generous things for them. This love is sacrificial and it's willing to pay the price for someone else. It's actually so um, th- the biggest difference between the love that we think of um, is a love that cannot be commanded because it, we cannot control it. We cannot produce it with our will. For example, um, your spouse. You fell in love with your spouse. That was not really something you chose. That was something that involuntarily happened. Um, so you can't com- I can't command you to do that. But yet the, the entire New Testament and, and even um, message of Jesus is a command to love. So that tells me that this love has to be a different kind of love. He's, he's telling me that this love is something that you can choose in your own will, whether you feel like it or not. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's what agape is. This love is sacrificial and it's willing to pay a price for someone else. So listen, um, if you're offended by a brother or sister in Christ and you're choosing to hold on to offense, you're not walking in this love that Paul is talking about and that we're so uh, commanded to do um, in the in the New Testament scriptures. So um, I want to do an episode fully on love and what it means and, and dive in deep. But what I want you to know today is that it's an act of the will, not an act of emotion. It's not something that comes out of emotion. It's actually something that is truest and most beautiful when you uh, choose to, to, to love somebody when you don't like them in your emotions. And so um, that's what I want to note about the word love. Um, knowledge, we, we underline that. Um, knowledge of what? Uh, knowledge of God and his character. 
Um, so how would Jesus love in this situation? Well, I can't live like Jesus if I don't have the knowledge of God and his character. So Paul's saying, I, I, I want you to abound in real knowledge of God and his character so that you can display that with your life and you can follow Jesus in that and you can live in that. He's praying that that you and I and, and this um, Philippian church would truly learn the ways of Jesus when it comes to love. Um, there's a lot of um, people that call passivity love, you know, like I don't want to deal with conflict and I'm just going to let them, uh, do what they're doing because I love them and I'm going to love them through it. And I'm going to, and it's really more of passivity. And again, it comes back to knowledge of what love is. Um, and I would just like to note that the, the people who call um, conforming love, it, that's not love. That's, that's con- conformity is rooted in fear. Um, and as we know through uh, Scripture, there's no fear in love. And so we really need to have the knowledge of what love is so that we can live that um, and not be mistaken. The second thing we um, underlined here is discernment. So we have knowledge of God and his character, and then we have discernment of the Holy Spirit to understand what love truly is in each and, at, in each and every uh, situation based on the context. Um, so um, in the West, you know, I really am concerned that um, we've, lost, um, we've, we've lost true agape love um, in a lot of ways, especially when we look around. Uh, a lot of people talk about it, you know. A lot of people talk about, um, you know, we want to love and, and, and a love is kind of the supreme goal and, and, you know, let's love our neighbor and love everybody no matter what they believe or how they act and, and love has become passive and conforming and, and, uh, what Paul is saying here is I pray that you have true understanding of what godly love is. Because there's a lot of passive love. There's a lot of love that's just conformity. Um, it's not really love. It's just um, the fear um, of holding one's ground or whatever needs to be done um, in a particular situation. Um, and we cannot, um, we cannot continue to justify passivity, conformity. Those things are rooted in fear, not love, but they're being disguised as love in America. And they cannot be continued to be held under the banner of love. And that's where the discernment of the Holy Spirit is. Is, is Holy Spirit help me discern here? Is my actions love? Or is it really just passivity and conformity? I don't want to deal with it. And so that's actually rooted in fear. And there's no fear in love. And so what Paul's saying is knowledge of God and his character. So you can love like Jesus would. And discernment of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible does not talk about every single context that's going to arise in your life. And so we need the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in our context. And so that's what Paul's saying here is that um that he's he he prays that our love would abound but he knows it's going to take the knowledge of god and character and discernment of the holy spirit for that to happen um so what happens to people that um are that abound in love and that it's a love that's rooted in the knowledge of god and the discernment of the holy spirit um they end up proving the things that are excellent now why is that important because he goes on to say, you will remain blameless until the day of Christ. Um, so if we prove the things that are excellent, which only happens if we abound in love rooted in the knowledge and discernment of God, um, 
then we will then prove the things that are excellent and as a result be blameless until the day of Christ. Uh, what's the day of Christ uh, that he's referring to? It's the day of judgment in which we will all be accountable for how we acted and lived in this life. Second Corinthians 5, 9-10 um, gives us a lot of insight on that. It says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning at home with the Lord or absent, um, being on this earth, uh, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may uh, be uh, recompensed um, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's the day of Christ. That's why we want to remain blameless. We want to prove the things that are excellent. We really want to live out godly love, so we need knowledge and discernment. Um, and secondly, um, we um, will f- uh, fulfill and live out and bear the fruit of righteousness. Galatians 5, 22 through 25 tells us a lot about what that is. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, and these only come through Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit. That's the only way these will be produced in us if we abide in the vine. And apart from that, we can do nothing. It's only through the Holy Spirit that we can produce the fruit of righteousness. Again, it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can love. So it goes all the way back to the starting point of this whole thing. Um, the ultimate goal of all of this really is to vindicate God's name on the earth. When we live in a way that represents him, we vindicate his name. We represent him well. We give him a good reputation and name in the earth, and uh, it brings praise and glory to his name. And that's what Paul is saying uh, when he says to here. It says, which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. That word to here could also be unto the glory and praise of God which comes through Jesus unto, or it produces the glory and praise of God. It leads to the glory and praise of God. Um, And so that's the whole purpose of all this, is the byproduct of every action of our life is to bring glory and praise to the reputation in the name of Jesus. And so that is the essence of Paul's prayer for the saints, for this church of Philippi, for you, for me, the overseers, the deacons, for everybody. It's this prayer. Um, it's how he concludes the introductory to his letter. Um, so with that being said, we have completed the uh, first 11 verses in the first chapter of Philippians. And my goodness, it was dense, it was rich, but I'm so excited to begin um, on verse 12. Next time we'll be looking at verses 12 through 20. And um, man, I'm excited about that. And the rest of this book is going to be full of rich uh, application, teaching, and things of that nature. Again, this was only the introductory uh, opening line and statement, if you will, of his letter. And so moving forward, it's going to be an incredible. Um, so uh, go home, read it, re-listen to this, study it for yourself, ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate things, comment below um, on things the Holy Spirit is illuminating to you and showing you as you read and study God's word. I'd love to hear about them and dialogue about them, and mention them and expound on them. But until next time, God bless you. Love you. See you then.